Hello, my friends. We are cruising into the Book of Kings, which is kind of exciting to start a second book. Remember, as an overview, this tells the story of the handing off of the kingship to Solomon and then the glory days of the kingdom of Israel or the kingship of Israel in Solomon and then the division of the kingdom and kind of how Israel staggers through unbelief. Um, the northern kingdom, Israel, never really having any great kings. The southern kingdom, Judah, going on and off with good kings and then ultimately leading towards the exile and kind of answering the question, how did Israel end up in exile when it's God's people and when they have the Davidic promise? And telling the story about the unfaithfulness of Israel and even God being faithful in the midst of their unfaithfulness and showing the faithfulness of God, especially through the prophets. But this is the big overview, but we're just in the beginning days of the book of Kings where David is handing off his kingship to Solomon. And we read in the last chapter how um, Solomon came to power in the midst of a potential kind of coup or a usurpation. And David had to be prodded into action in order to establish Solomon as king. And now in this chapter, we're going to see Solomon um, kind of deal with his enemies. And so this is a controversial chapter because it doesn't look that great the way Solomon is um, going out there and ending people's lives. But uh, these are enemies of Solomon and enemies of what God was doing. And so um, it's complicated. It's political. Uh, but let's read it and we can evaluate as we go. So we're in First Kings. We're in chapter 2. It says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, if you were remember from last time, I said the kind of prophetic evaluative um, point of view for the kings of uh, Israel and Judah is, do they keep the law of Moses and do they act like David? And you can see right here that the the narrator uh, delivering us this exhortation from David gives us that perspective. I'm not making this up. This is the perspective of the book. David says to Solomon, obey the words of Moses and fulfill God's promise by having like a faithful heart, just like I did. That was David's big thing. He was a man after God's own heart. And so you th see these double perspectives, be like David and obey Moses. This is the perspective of the whole book that evaluates how the kings are doing. And we're actually being given this evaluative framework by David as he's dying. So this is where I would just say like, I'm not making this up and just pay attention to what's actually going on. And God actually helps you understand how he's writing his story here. All right. So you have this double, th this double command, be strong, show yourself a man, obey Moses, and uh, be like me in faithfulness from the heart so that God can fulfill his promise, his Davidic covenant. 
And then he goes on from there, verse 5. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Okay, so this is where he gets a bit dodgy here, because David didn't take action against Joab in his lifetime, very likely because Joab was a well-established guy and he maybe didn't see a way to deal with him. But now he's handing this off to Solomon to deal with Joab. And this is going to be a little bit sketch because you just think, why didn't David deal with it? But um, there is a warning here. David's just saying like your uncle or great uncle, I'm not sure what the relationship is exactly. Um, your uncle or great uncle Joab can't be trusted he's proven before that he's got a murderous heart and there is actually justice hovering over him because he murdered these guys outside of war to pretty much get revenge in one case and to protect his own position in another case and here we see Solomon being introduced to us as someone who's wise so David is saying like use your wisdom which means like um, realize what's going on and conduct yourself in such a way to bring about from this perspective a just end so don't go and be a murderer too but set things up so that hearts are revealed use your wisdom verse 7 but deal loyally with the son of barzillai the gileadite and let them be among those who eat at your table for with such loyalty they met me when i fled from solomon your brother you might remember that from uh, uh, second samuel where barzillai came during that time so um, david is saying wanting to hand down both faithfulness as well as unfinished business verse 8 and there is also with you Shimei the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mehanaim and when he came down to meet me at the Jordan I swore to him by the Lord saying I will not put you to death with the sword now therefore do not hold him guiltless for you are wise man you will know what you ought to do to him and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So here we see this again, where David's saying, like, there's this sense of justice still hanging over this guy, um, but you can't just go out there and take him out. Uh, use your wisdom. This guy isn't a good guy. Be on your guard against him, but also um, use your wisdom with this guy. And so we're going to see how this unfolds. But this is why people think that this is like a gray zone and kind of sketch, like, why is David putting out hits on these people? Um, but if you remember in the last chapter, there are a lot of people who aren't to be trusted during transitions of power, who are manipulative and have murderous hearts and stuff. And these are all people who have really proven themselves to be uh, bad dudes. And Solomon does need to be on his guard against them. And more. Verse 10, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years, and he reigned seven days in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So we have one of these transition uh, declarations here where a king dies and his um, successor is mentioned. And this is going to be a theme in the book that comes up over and over again, or a refrain, I guess it's called, where we're going to hear about one king dying and another king ruling this place. This whole book is based around actually the transition of reigns and one king being evaluated and another king coming up. And so we have it here right at the beginning as well, this transitionary declaration from David, how long he reigned, and then that Solomon is taking over for him. And now we're going to get into the dirty business here. 
Verse 13, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Speak. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers, for it is from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Speak. And he said, Please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. And Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. So, remember, Adonijah is self-exalting. And so when he comes to talk to Bathsheba, she says, Do you come peacefully? And he says, Peacefully, but he's, it's this, we have no reason to trust him. And so she says, You can speak. And then you see him revealing his heart. You know that the kingdom was mine. It wasn't. Israel fully expected me to reign. They didn't. And then he says, well, however, it turned, it, it became my brother's first from the Lord. Now, if it's really from the Lord, he should have been speaking about this with faith. He should have never said the kingdom was mine and people cared about this. So he is a selfish person and he's a people-oriented pe person. When he brings the Lord's name into this, it is taking the Lord's name in vain. He doesn't actually believe that the kingdom is his or would that this turn of event is from the Lord. And so he's being manipulative. And so when he asks for Abishag, we shouldn't assume that there's any good motive there. And of course, with royalty, when somebody marries someone who um, was associated with the previous king, that would give some kind of royal right. It could be used as um, a, a stepping stool into kingship. So it does look like Adonijah is still maneuvering for power, maybe to take out and assassinate Solomon, or maybe if Solomon died, then Abishag. Uh, Adonijah could say, well, here I am with the David's ex-wife or something like that. And so um, it's, it's, it's dirty. This, these are dirty deals. And Bathsheba goes along with this. And now we're unsure. We don't really know Bathsheba's heart in this. Is she understanding that this is not good, but she wants to see Adonijah taken out? And so she's going to make the request um, just to see the best of happen. Or is she just kind of getting bamboozled? Or maybe she wants to get rid of Abishag. Maybe she doesn't want Abishag to be involved with Solomon in any way. Um, you know, this is actually the king's other wife. Maybe he she's kind of happy to get rid of her. Maybe she's happy to get rid of her. So we don't know. But Bathsheba does participate with the request, and we'll see what happens. Verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on her behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. So this is very honoring. This is a good thing. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Again, honoring and good. Then she said, I have one small request to make to you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother. I will not refuse you. She said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Okay, so Solomon sees right through this, that this is a political ploy for power, and he knows that if he grants this, he's as good as dead. Even acknowledging that Adonijah is the older brother, so in one sense the age gives him a bit more of a claim to the throne. And so he sees, you know, if, if my older brother ends up with my father's concubine, um, we're toast. And so he sees through this for what it is. And he doesn't grant his mother's request. This is, and I, I kind of contrast this with uh, Herod. Remember when Herod's 
stepdaughter dance for him and he says you know i'll grant the request up to half my kingdom and then she asked for the head of john the baptist and he goes through with it um, solomon didn't go through with it even though he had said that he, he did what was right 23 then king solomon swore by the lord saying god do so to me and more also if this word does not cost adonijah his life now therefore as the lord lives who has established me and placed me on the throne of david my father who has made me a house as he promised adonijah shall be put to death today so Solomon, so King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and struck him down, and he died. So this is kind of Solomon acting in his wisdom. He doesn't pick the fight with Adonijah, but as soon as he sees Adonijah reveal himself, he acts decisively. Remember before, at the end of the last chapter, he said, if Adonijah is a good guy, he'll be fine. If wickedness is found in him, it's going to be all over for him. And so uh, Solomon is waiting and ready, but he's not picking the fight. And this is his political wisdom right here. As soon as Adonijah um, reveals himself, there is judgment without mercy here. Verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you to serve death, because you participated in the coup. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, because you shared in my father's afflictions. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Again, so here is Solomon acting wisdom. This is good. He, um, he is not like King Saul killing a priest. He spares a priest. He honors um, the good that Abiathar did, but he also needs to remove him from political influence in Jerusalem and he gets rid of him. But the the prophetic narrator also noted, remembers how God said that um, because of Eli's un son's unfaithfulness, that <clears throat> there would be trouble for them. And so the prophet who's writing this book connects Abiathar's expulsion to the word of the Lord spoken to Eli at the beginning of 1 Samuel. So remember, these books have memory. They remember what happened in previous books. And so this is being reminded to us because we aren't, excuse me, meant to forget all of first samuel we're supposed to remember all of first samuel we're supposed to remember the book of moses we're supposed to rem remember everything from genesis to the end of deuteronomy and first samuel and judges too probably we're supposed to be remembering how this is all progressing so that we can see god's ways and faithfulness unfolding verse 28 then the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom. Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah is probably the captain of the guard, and being the hitman here, the head of the secret service. And, uh, Joab's response to hearing that there's a bit of a house cleaning starting, the fact that he becomes afraid and goes to the altar, is a sign of his bad conscience and his bad intent. He really was against Solomon, and that's why he flees from him. Verse 30, So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the Lord that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. 
so shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. This is a complicated speech because in one sense, you know, kings do judge people by their own speech. When Job says, no, I'll die here, Solomon says, okay, you've admitted your guilt and your worthiness of death. And so he um, confirms the, the command to kill him because of Joab's own confession that he deserves to die. And he pronounces this judgment that this actually is fulfilling justice that wasn't dealt with under David. But the thing that complicates this is that Solomon declares that there's going to be peace on the on David and his descendants and his house forever, uh, but there isn't. So Solomon declares this as being part of a justice fulfilled and taking away blood guilt, but um, it's messier than that because at least Solomon doesn't fulfill the faith that he's walking in till the end of his days. And uh, so there you go. Verse 34, Then Benai the son of Jehoiada went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And the king put Benai the son of Jehoiada over the army in the place of Joab. And the king put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. So the... Uh, the the unfaithful bits of the old kingdom are being removed and it was all triggered by Ab uh, Adonijah trying to subtly build towards another coup. Verse 36, Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good, as my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. This is a case of like, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies even closer. And so um, Solomon doesn't trust Shimei. And so he, he, again, similar to Adonijah, he provides him an opportunity to live out the rest of his days in peace by just being faithful to his word and having good character. And Shimei accepts this deal. Okay, he doesn't argue right here. He just says, what you say is good. I agree to these terms. If I stay in Jerusalem, I'll live. If I leave Jerusalem, I'll die. Sounds good. Probably knowing that he deserves to die right away. Verse 39, but it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Akish, the son of Maka, the king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, which might remind us of the time that David was on the run with the Philistines, Shimei arose which would make Shimei kind of like a Saul figure. Uh, Shimei arose and saddled the donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, No, for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever you shall die. And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord? And the commandment with which I commanded you. The king also said to Shimei, You know in your heart all the harm that you did to David my father, so the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, we've heard this before, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. That's the end of this chapter. But again, so. Solomon's commanded to use his wisdom with these untrustworthy people. He sets up Shimei to live if he's a good and repentant man, but to have his own 
lack of faithfulness come back on his own head if he leaves Jerusalem. And God sets up this situation where these servants run away. Shimei decides that under these circumstances, he's allowed to disobey. He goes and gets them and comes back, not knowing that he sealed his own fate. Solomon hears about it and says, you're going to die because of the oath you broke. And you know that this is happening to you because of the lack of faithfulness you had to the previous king, David. You were unfaithful to that king. You're unfaithful to this king. Um, by your own word, you're going to die. And so this is this kind of like political wisdom that Solomon is walking in to establish his kingdom at the beginning of this uh, story, in the beginning of his life. And in some sense, he is trying to do this in faith. I think when he says, you know, I'm doing this to be blessed, uh, I think there's some sense which he is. He wants his kingdom established and peaceful and not having divisions in it. And when the kingdom is divided later on, of course, the north and the south would often be fighting. And David had multiple civil wars in his lifetime. And so Solomon is trying to eradicate the possibility of civil wars in Israel and he's not just going out and eliminating his enemies he's actually just being on guard for when they display sin in their hearts he responds with what they deserve but it still is kind of like these aren't the best of times when Solomon is doing these things and so it ends by saying the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon which signifies to us that the threat of civil war is over here and we're instead going to start having these stories of Solomon meeting with the Lord and beginning to build up Jerusalem and building the temple which is going to take us multiple chapters to get through but this is that sign when it says the kingdom was established it means this is going to be a united kingdom not under threat of civil war and there you go. A major transition from the reign of David. We've been introduced to the evaluation perspective of the law of Moses and the Davidic covenant being the two eyeballs, the two glass lenses that this book is meant to be read through, and Solomon establishing the kingdom by using political wisdom to remove kind of cancerous threats from his royal household. Be blessed, guys.